Hello and welcome to Kerrang Back Issues. Testing, testing, one, two, three, how does that sound? Jesus. I had a bloody nightmare last week. Um, the, yeah, the first 12 minutes or so of the episode. I just, I don't know what it was, the issue. I think I've got a new laptop. I plugged my microphone in. I don't think my microphone was registering properly. There was a part of me that was thinking, hang on a minute. Is this how this microphone sounds on the new laptop? Or... Uh, and am I going to have to put it through like some sort of post-production thing? Or am I being an idiot? Uh, I, I think it turned out I was just being an idiot. And I needed to unplug the microphone and plug it back in so that the driver would be recognised um, on the on the system. Blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter, does it? It sounds good now. Sorry about the last 12 minutes. Last 12 minutes? First 12 minutes of last week. I've already said hello, haven't I? Hello, welcome to Back Issues. This week... Oh, by the way, I'm your host, Stephen. This week, we'll be looking at issue number 558, August the 12th, 1995, pence. I just realised what a scattergun intro this is. I'm sorry, that this is not my usual standard. Usually, I'm bang on it, nailing it perfectly. But, you know, we can't be perfect, can we? Only human. The cover stars for this week's issue of Kerrang! are Soundgarden. Studio Sonic World Exclusive, Soundgarden in Seattle, Reading, the new LP, and Where They're At, Man. Nirvana, Kurt's Guitar Auctioned, Save £6 on LPs at Virgin. Metallica, How You Can Take Their Show at Donington. Machine Head, Guns and Gangs, Oakland Horror. Blind Melon, our new album was made on drugs. Ministry, Torturing People, It's Good Fun. Skunk and Nancy and Dub War, Freedom for Deptford. Posters, Bon Jovi, Pearl Jam, Dog Eat Dog, Bush, plus Foo Fighters, In Bed With Lemmy, Dollface and ACDC. Jesus Christ, I think they've put the entire content of Kerrang! on the cover this week. There's barely any room for Chris Cornell's beautiful face to be staring out at us. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Kerrang! Back Issues, I don't know why you would would after that absolutely terrible intro, but you can find us on Instagram, Kerrang! Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang! Pod, Email karangbackissues at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave us a review, please leave us a good review. Uh, you can do that on Apple Music or Spotify. Please only leave us five stars. It helps other people to find the podcast and it bumps us up the charts for niche metal magazines from the 90s. <laughs> the chart, you know, the charts for that because there's so much stiff competition out there for me. I'm just going to get on with the magazine because this intro is a joke. Let's begin this week with a swift word from the editor. This week it has been too hot to gather any organised thoughts on how wacky things have been at Kerrang HQ. So instead of a regular load of editorial waffle, here's some random thoughts on five things you can do with this week's issue of Kerrang. 1. Use it as a rather natty sunshield by balancing it on your bont when you go out. 2. Use it as a fan by waving it about when you're stuck on the 135 bus because of the flaming roadworks in Camden. 3. Wait until August bank holiday and use it as a comfortable mat to sit on at Reading or Donington. 4. Wait until 5pm when the bog rolls run out at Donington or Reading and see if you aren't chuffed to have a copy of your extra soft two-ply big Kerrang. 5. Read it and learn everything you need to know about the happenings on the planet rock. Hope you find these handy hints are handy. Right, I'm off to sit in my mum's freezer for a few days. Phil Alexander, editor. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Bad news! 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 Bad
Mayhem, the loudest news first. The man who sold to the world, Kurt Cobain, guitar auctioned in the UK, tribute albums compiled in the USA. Kurt Cobain memorabilia went on sale in London last Thursday. The sale took place at Bonhams in Chelsea. Two of the late Nirvana's leaders' guitars featured among over 2,000 items of film and music-related curios, which generated a total of £180,550. These were a Japanese nylon string acoustic signed by all the members of Nirvana and a red Epiphone Strat signed Simply Kurt. A Kerrang poster signed by all of Nirvana, also bearing the legend Nirvana Sunks, also went under the hammer. Plus the Fender Jazzmaster, which Cobain's widow Courtney Love threw into the audience at whole Shepherd's Bush Empire gig on May the 10th. Surprisingly, Love's guitar fetched over £1,000 more than either of Cobain's. Hers went for £2,600, while Cobain's acoustic and electric were sold for £1,500 and £1,000. The Kerrang poster went for £190. Kerrang photographer Mark Lealoa, who took the poster picture, told Mayhem, I'm wondering if I should buy it myself. London's Hanway Street Vinyl Experience Shop bought the Love guitar. The Nirvana items were purchased via commission bids and the buyers must remain anonymous. Other rock items included a BC Rich guitar signed by Guns N' Roses, Axl Rose and Slash, £1,000, a signed copy of Led Zeppelin's physical graffiti album, £250, and the dressing room door of London's Marquee Club, £850 to London's Hard Rock Cafe. The sources I've got these items from are probably different to the ones other people would use, explained Bonham's rock and pop specialist Ted Owen. Courtney's guitar was a direct giveaway at the Empire gig. We were also offered a smash guitar of Kurt's that would have sold for a very high price, but it never actually came through the door. Owen admits that securing proof of authenticity often amounts to a lot of trust. The Cobain guitars came from someone close to Kurt in LA and an English collector. The Kerrang poster says Owen came from a Kerrang reader who had the foresight to go up to Nirvana and say, do it for me guys. Interestingly, he believes the guitars would fetch the same prices whether Cobain was alive or dead. Cobain was a cult hero before he died, he notes. Like Jimi Hendrix, he had a short span of success, but it'll probably be worth about £10,000 in four years. Their value will increase rapidly if his phenomenon continues. And if Courtney dies, then the prices of everything will go through the ceiling. I hope she doesn't know, because I quite like Hole. Kurt Cobain's music and influence will be honoured on two tribute albums which are currently being put together by US independent labels. The first entitled Angels Bleed is being compiled by Reversing Records in Maine. Described as a compilation tribute, the album will feature songs inspired by Cobain's life, work and death. All will be original compositions performed by a wide variety of artists. Meanwhile, a New Jersey-based label is recruiting bands for its Cobain tribute album via an advert in the classified section of Seattle's fortnightly music magazine, The Rocket. The ad, which describes the album as a benefit, is titled Requiem for Kurt Cobain and invites interested bands to submit high-quality recordings inspired by Kurt's life death for the CD-only release. Stock Press and Bon Jovi will release a new single, Something for the Pain, on September the 4th. Live will release a new single, All Over You, on September the 18th. Down, the supergroup featuring Pantera frontman Phil Anselmo and Corrosion of Conformity guitarist Pepper Keenan will release their debut album Nola on September the 18th. Caius have been confirmed as a support act of Faith No More's forthcoming UK tour. Ministry have entered the final stages of recording on their Filth Pink album in Chicago's Track Studios. The album, which was originally set to emerge in October, may now not appear until Spring 96. The delay has apparently been caused by technical problems in the studio which prompted a move from Austin, Texas to Chicago. Also, main man Al Jorgensen and Paul Barker are notoriously methodical workers. 
At present though, the duo's creative juices are flowing at full steam ahead. The album looks set to include the following tracks, Reload, Filth Pig, Useless, Lava, Paisley, Well and a cover of Bob Dylan's Lay Lady Lay, which will be the first single. Ministry have already recorded a video for the track, rolling the cameras in December before heading off to Australia for the Big Day Out tour. It's a performance video, offers Barker. It's kinda lame, like the band playing live, but there's a couple of narrative imagery scenes going on. In this case, it's about love, man. We thought we'd show a kinder, gentler side to Ministry. Metallica will allow 600 fans to film or tape their set at this year's Donington Festival on Saturday, August the 26th. The band will be issuing 600 special taper tickets, which will allow people to bring audio and video recording equipment onto the site. The table tickets will only be available to people who have already purchased a standard ticket for Donington 95. If you want to apply for a tape ticket, you should send your original ticket to Aimcarve Limited, 16 Birmingham Road, Walsall, West Midland, W51 2NA. The first 600 will be sent taper tickets, which also qualify as entry tickets. Unsuccessful applicants will have their original tickets returned. On the day, there will be no designated area set aside for taping, but only people wearing taper tickets will be admitted onto the site with recording equipment. Metallica also wished to emphasize that all tapes made at the event are strictly for personal use only. Good luck with that one, Metallica. Radio 1's Sunday Rock Show will also be recording the entire Donington 95 show, which also features Therapy, Skid Row, Slayer, Slashy Snake Pit, White Zombie, Machine Head, Warrior Soul and Corrosion of Conformity. It will broadcast selected Donington 95 highlights on Sunday, August 27th from 8pm to 10pm. The Sunday Rock Show will broadcast specific Donington 95 sets by the respective bands throughout the year. And on the day itself, a special shuttle bus will be running between the Reading Festival and Donington. It will leave the Reading site at 8am on August 26th and will arrive at Donington in time for Corrosion of Conformity's opening set at 11.30am. The bus will return to Reading immediately after Metallica's set. Tickets for the bus, price £10, can be booked by phone. Call 0159 342 031. Foo Fighters and Skunk and Nancy will both be playing sets at the UK's foremost music biz seminar in the city in Manchester on September the 5th. Dave Grohl's hugely acclaimed new band, who are currently touring the US with Wall, will also be headlining the second stage at the Reading Festival on Saturday, August 26th, while Skunk and Nancy play the main stage on the same day. Skunk and Nancy, who've just recruited ex-Blow drummer Mark Richardson, will be releasing a new single charity to coincide with their Reading appearance on August 21st. Their eagerly awaited new album Paranoid and Sunburnt will follow on September the 18th. P, the band formed by actor Johnny Depp and Butthole Surfer's main man Gibby Haynes will release their self-titled debut album on September the 12th. Produced by ex-Rollins band current Ween bassist Andrew Weiss at Oceanway Studios in LA, it's a bluesy space age and supercharged collection of whacked out tunes. Depp and Haynes initially met through their mutual friend Sal Janko at the Actors Club The Viper Room. Johnny is a real creative guy who's played music for many, many years, explains Haynes of his thespian partner. When he ran away from Florida, it was to be in a band. PCs, Haynes on lead vocals, Depp playing bass and singing, Janko on drums and Bill Carter on guitar. Pennywise, the Homosa Beach Punks will play a UK headline show at London's Highbury Garage on September 22nd. 
The band, whose third album About Time has just been released, will also make two festival appearances this summer. On August 23rd, they played a Sunstroke 95 in Dublin. Joining the builder also features headliners Soundgarden, White Zombie and Mudhoney. And on August 27th, they'll line up on the main stage at the Reading Festival. In addition, the foursome are hoping to make a guest appearance at the biggest skateboarding event in the UK, Radlands, in September. Records news and dissection, the Swedish death black metal act released an album titled The Storm of the Light Bane via Nuclear Blast on October 27th. GZR, Geezer Butler, the ex-Sabbath man who is currently plying his trade as bassist with Ozzy, is to release an album under this name through TVT during October. The album is titled Plastic Planet and aside from Geezer also features guest vocals from Fear Factory's Burton C. Bell. Life of Agony, the rising New York hardcore act, issued their second album Ugly through Roadrunner during October. The album has been produced by Steve Thompson. Whatever, the hot young Brit act featuring former Wild Hearts drummer Stiddy will release their debut EP through Music for Nations on September 25th. In the meantime, you can catch them live at Newcastle Trillions August 10th, Swindon Bell Festival 12th. The band also have t-shirts available priced at £9 plus PMP from 33 Trevor Fick Street, Gateshead, Tynan Weir, NE8, 4XP. Tour news, and above all, the fast-rising Southend Straight Edge Act play London King's Cross Splash Club on August the 12th. Ash, the Irish band have rescheduled five dates recently postponed due to a death in a band member's family. Birmingham Juggervel, August 14th, Derby Warehouse 15th, Canterbury Penny Theatre 16th, London LA2 18th and Brighton Concord 24th. The band are offering a reward for information leading to the recovery of four videotapes stolen from the Camden Dublin Castle in London on July 24th. Contact Paddy on 0181 960 9899. Meridian, the prog rock heroes, have added a further date to their September UK tour. This will be at Oxford Apollo on September the 15th. Paul, the Kansas Trio warm up for their appearance at the Reading Festival on August 27th by playing London Camden Palace feet first August 22nd and London King's Cross Splash Club on the 23rd. Pitch Shifter, the Industrial Monsters will now not be appearing at the Surfers Against Sewage Festival announced last issue. Mayhem America, the hottest US news as it happens, starting this week with Don Kay in New York. Megadeth's Dave Mustaine popped up on Politically Incorrect, a humour-orientated political chat show. Mustaine was surprisingly quiet until he finally insulted another guest, a pollster for Conservative President candidate Bob Dole, who's recently been whinging on about how bad music and movies are for kids. Mustaine has, however, been a different man on the current leg of Megadeth's US tour, stepping outside venues to chat with kids waiting to get in and being a generally nice guy. The Macintosh New Music Festival made its debut in New York this summer, one of many smaller festivals bidding to replace the bloated bankrupt New Music Seminar. Smaller in scope, the new festival sadly suffered from first year disorganisation and a lack of truly intriguing shows. The much vaunted computer hookup between clubs via the internet, hence Macintosh's involvement, was a noticeable disappointment, as most of the machines either shut down in the heat of the clubs or were jostled by patrons as they walked by. The best moment though was when Seattle's excellent Green Apple Quick Step 
During an acoustic set at Under Acme performed a brilliant cover of science fiction double feature from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The 95-96 Worldwide Kiss Convention recently roared into New York's Roseland Ballroom. For the princely sum of $100, fans could indulge in a 12-hour marathon featuring dealers in Kiss memorabilia, a travelling Kiss museum, performances by tribute bands in full makeup, a Q&A session with all four current members of the band, an extended autograph session and a two-hour unplugged performance by the quartet themselves that brought the house down. Two fans even got married during the event, the bride wearing Paul Stanley makeup, the groom in Gene Simmons face paint. KISS also recorded an MTV unplugged show on August the 8th which will be broadcast during the autumn. US News Extra and Aussie Rock Sprog's Silverchair's Frogstomp album in the pace setter in this week's Billboard Top 200 having leapt to number 43 on the chart. Bush have had their 16 stone album certified platinum for 1 million sales in the US, while Live's Throwing Copper has now sailed past the 4 million sales mark. Dinosaur Jr.'s bassist Mike Johnson is set to record his second solo album, which will be released for Atlantic next spring. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. Smashing Pumpkins are currently in LA, putting the finishing touches to what began as a double album, but could now turn out to be a triple set. I've heard a few smidgens of the new stuff and it's devastatingly awesome. The band are on a tight schedule as they're meant to finish the record before heading off to headline the Reading Festival. Meanwhile, there have been several LA sightings of guitarist James Iyer. The first was on the escalator at Barney's, Beverly Hills department store, and the next backstage with Shudder to Think at a Foo Fighters gig. No effects are releasing a live album on Fat Records called I Heard They Suck Live. Two live shows were recorded at the Roxy in LA last January from a mobile truck. The newly reunited Circle Jerks have embarked on a US tour, which met with Mayhem in Las Vegas. Just before soundcheck, 80% of the roof collapsed at the Hundred Theatre, where the band show was scheduled to take place. Fortunately, according to second-hand reports, there were no fatalities or serious injuries. Farouk Assault guitarist Louise Post has suffered a neck injury, forcing the band to postpone several live dates supporting live. Farouk Assault pick up the tour in Austin, Texas. Catherine Will and Big Audio Dynamite were both asked by live to fill in. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Next up we have concerts, and the first concert reviewed this week is Deptford Urban Free Festival, live at the Deptford Fordham Park, London, on Saturday, July 29th. This one is reviewed by Morat, and this gets electrocution out of 5, 5 out of 5. Almighty bassist Floyd London has just experienced a noise stage here at Fordham Park. Some bloke just puked all over the place, he informs me gleefully. And then these two kids squatted down and shat. The noise stage is crusty heaven. Bad facial tattoos and dogs on strings abound. I just caught the last couple of songs by what I presume were suicidal supermarket trolleys, a reasonable, if ludicrously named, conflict-inspired outfit, and then was forced to retreat to less pungent turf. If this day-long festival has a fort, bearing in mind that it's free, so you shouldn't moan at all, is that it's outgrown itself and needs a bit more space. Rancid toilets, dog shit, crusties and baking sunshine can make it all a tad overwhelming at times and some kicking sound systems could do with being further apart so it doesn't all merge into a fucking headache. I try my luck at the noise stage again for Ugly Beat, a manic Sunderland punk band with a parpy saxophone, but Essence de Crusty drives me back. Scarfo on the Spirit of Tom stage, main stage, are less interesting. Kind of indie punk with nods at the jam, but at least you can breathe over there. 
With so many stages, it's impossible to check out all the cool bands today. Your guaranteed Coitus and Scrap Iron Scientist would have been good, but they clash with other stuff. And you simply can't miss Dub War. Detonating with Mad Zone and vocalist Benji's infamous Air Raid Siren, the Welsh four-piece provide 30 minutes of the finest raging ragger punk, raising much dust from the stage and the field. Perhaps with such fierce competition to follow, Dub War were going for it particularly hard today. More likely, I'd just forgotten how great they are live, but Strike It sounds almost atomic. If this is Dub War, then where do I sign up? Few bands could match such a set, but Skunk and Nancy are undoubtedly one of the best new bands on the planet. Kicking off with Little Baby Swastika, through Rage and Selling Jesus, there is absolutely no stopping them. Until the bass packs up, you can't help but feel for them. Rapturous vocalist skin, resplendent in a condon is a cunt t-shirt, can probably see our house from the stage, and new drummer Mark Richardson, ex-Blow, must be playing his first gig with them. Glastonbury repeats itself. While amps are being prodded, we get a, a quite awesome new ballad called Weak As I Am, but sadly time is running out and it's a very dejected skunkinancy that finished with Intellectualize My Blackness. Shit happens, but rest assured, no one will be put off with the bittersweet taste of skunk. The next review this week is for Filter, live at the Limelight New York on Tuesday, July 25th. Reviewed by Don K, this one gets a high voltage out of 5, 4 out of 5. Filter are the hottest thing in America right now. The industrial angst kids on the block nipping at the heels of Big Brother Nine Inch Nails. The single Hey Man Nice Shot is on MTV every 20 minutes and the limelight is steaming this evening for the unit's New York debut. This is Filter's first tour ever and it shows. The two-man core frontman Richard Patrick and guitarist programmer Brian Leesgang has expanded to a five-piece, yet no one in the band has a sharply defined presence. However, the five of them, with the matching short haircuts and whip-thin frames, resemble an eerie platoon of wooden soldiers gone mad. They career around the stage like their strings have been seized by a psychotic drunkard. The image lingers in the mind. And the sound these soldiers create is massive. It's one rolling, grinding wall of thick, rumbling guitars and juggernaut grooves, leavened by Lee's gang's well-placed samples, which he activates with his footfire a keyboard on the floor. Each filter song is an exercise in tension and release like Gerbil and the overheating white like that. When Heyman explodes into its screaming defiant chorus, the floor in front of the stage implodes in a bubbling cloud of swirling flesh. There's no stopping filter when they really learn how to harness their life power. Look out. The reviews this week uh, for live shows are quite, quite thin on the ground. So this next review is for Medicine Hat. Uh, supported by Southside Peace Company at the Marquee London on Thursday, July 27th. Reviewed by Xavier Russell, this one gets Electrocution out of 5, 5 out of 5. A double dose of yeehaw mayhem, yes, Southern Rock is definitely back in vogue. Judging by the enthusiastic response to this doubleheader, the Marquee had turned into a Confederate battlefield and Leonard Skinner shirts taking the honours. Southside Peace Company hit you with a bottle of wild turkey. Led by former horse London bassist Damon, the company turned in a superlative display of chicken scratch rock. Opening with What Kind of Love, the guitars were joyous. Lead growler Mark got his harmonica out for sometimes, which also contained some delightful harmonies. Other high points included the Doc Holiday influenced Saturday Night Blues and a rip-roaring version of the Doobie Brothers classic Long Train Home. It's very encouraging to see this kind of music being taken seriously again. Medicine Hat are already breaking into the big time. With a recent appearance on the chart show and a record deal in the bag, it's all systems go. 
A changing guitarist hasn't stopped Medicine Hat from becoming one of the best live bands currently packing in the pubs and clubs. Lead screecher Mark Jackson is without doubt one of the silliest but strongest frontmen around, and when he announced this one's for the rail strike people, travelling man, the marquee fell about as it did for the majority of the hat set. Other country thrash faves included Leg Iron, The Not So Fast, Come On Here, and Firing Muskogee. This band just keep getting better, and who could argue with encores like the Glen Campbell classic Rhinestone Cowboy? Next in Kerrang we have this week's cover stars, Black Hole Sons, Soundgarden, Seattle Reading and the new LP. Have Soundgarden gone AWOL? Is guitarist Kim Tao an alcoholic junkie? Did bassist Ben Shepard quit? Are the band really locked away in Pearl Jam studio and will they make it to the Reading Festival this year? Morat hits Seattle to find the answers. Poor old Seattle. Soundgarden's first ever gig was at a club called Top of the Court in Seattle. Don't go looking for it if you ever get the chance to visit this fair city, it's not there anymore. Many of the clubs where Seattle's grunge superstars first sweated it out have since changed hands, so those looking to play on the same stage as Nirvana will probably find themselves standing on a fancy restaurant. Things move on. On the far side of the town is Litho Studios, owned by Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard. Here, Soundgarden, arguably the finest of Seattle's estimated 1,000 bands, are working on the follow-up to their 3 million selling super unknown opus. The pace seems very leisurely, but maybe that's because it was vocalist guitarist Chris Cornell's birthday yesterday and everyone is nursing hangovers. Drummer Matt Cameron wanders off to record some drum tracks for a mid-paced yet frantic tune called An Unkind, while everyone else thumbs through dictionaries. Most bands do drugs in the studio, observes guitarist Kim Tile. We do crosswords. Cornell and I adjourn to the roof for a chat in the Seattle sunshine. It doesn't always rain here. I put it to him that Soundgarden seems to have gone very quiet since last year. We do that, nods Chris. If we're about uh, not doing anything, you don't really hear about us. These long periods of silence from Soundgarden do leave room for rumours to spread. Some interesting ones have been flying of late. Firstly, that bassist Ben Shepard has left the band. Yeah, we heard that. Then we looked around and Ben was still there, smiles Chris. He never voiced any interest in leaving. Another rumour was that Kim had turned into an alcoholic junkie. Kim's about the last person I could ever think of that would turn into a junkie, hoots Chris. I'm not even sure what an alcoholic is. I think an alcoholic is somebody that stops taking responsibility for the fact that they're drunk all the time. They just decide they're alcoholics. Sorry I crashed my car into your house, but I have a disease. It's not my fault. Clearly Kim is not an alcoholic. He just enjoys a good drink like anybody else. So how does it affect the band when you hear rumours like that? It doesn't really affect us, Cornell shrugs. We're pretty close-knit and we stay pretty far out of the gossip community. And we don't read a lot of magazines about ourselves or anybody else. I can only speak for myself, but it kind of washes over me. If I thought it was really true, you know, if I thought Ben was really serious about leaving the band, then that would really bug me. But we never seem to get much of it compared to a lot of other bands. We only end up with a few weird, nasty rumours here and there. It seems to me we're getting off easy. Naturally, there were all kinds of rumours when Soundgarden cancelled last year's European tour and an appearance at the Reading Festival. What exactly happened? I think we kinda overdid it, says Chris. We were playing five or six nights a week and my voice pretty much took a beating. Towards the end of the American tour, I felt like I could still kinda sing, but I wasn't really giving the band a fair shake. You don't buy a ticket to see some guy croak for two hours. That seemed like kind of a rip-off. We've never been the kind of band that cancels a tour when somebody breaks a finger. It would have to be something fairly extreme, and to me, that was. Plus, 
As a singer, you've got to be careful. If your voice is fatigued, you could probably still go on, but if you do a bunch more shows, all of a sudden you might never get to do a show again or make another record. It's pretty weird, dangerous and ambiguous territory because nobody really knows, you know? The doctor will say, well, your voice is fatigued. Thanks, here's 200 bucks, I already knew that. How do you feel about all the kids who booked time off work or bought non-refundable tickets for Reading? I'm not happy about it, sighs Cornell accepting a cigarette. I appreciate our fans and I wouldn't ever want to be in a position where we're screwing somebody over. It definitely didn't make me feel good. I wasn't at home drinking margaritas under an umbrella thinking everything was great. I was pretty bummed out about it for a long time. It takes a lot to make a decision like that, especially when it ends up all being one guy's fault. I mean, I was totally supported by the band, but the bottom line is that the tour was cancelled because I had a problem. You're definitely doing Reading this year. Did you know it used to be the big heavy metal festival? No, Chris grins. Well, we're going to wear big spiky boots and I'm going to wear a wig. I don't know, he ponders. It seems to me like Lollapalooza's are only more diverse. The shows that we've played like that have always been kind of cool. You're playing in front of an audience that's not entirely yours, which to a degree, I've always liked. Right now, Soundgarden are in a positive mood. Probably because the new album's coming along very nicely indeed, thank you very much. Basically, Soundgarden aren't dicking around with this record. We've always done demos, and then we'd make a record and spend the whole time trying to capture the essence of the demo. It seems really stupid. Why not just make the demos you record, Chris smiles. The album's been way faster and way easier. Plus, there's no expectations like, oh shit, we don't have a hit record, our label's gonna drop us. There's always been a certain amount of pressure, not directly from the label, but an assumed presence. Like, you know how the business works, and even though they're being cool, in the back of their mind they're saying, if this band doesn't make money, we don't support the band. At this stage, it wouldn't matter at all because we'd just go and sign a huge deal with some other label. But a couple of years ago, it would have mattered. There's a lot of great bands out there that have been dropped. Unless you're independently wealthy, that's what you need a record company for. Record companies got their fingers burnt in the clamour to sign something, anything from Seattle. No one will ever know if fame and acclaim were dished out to the right people. But such is the influence of the bands here that even the tourist map showed a sub-pop megamart and mentioned the famous Seattle sound. It's a little strange, but it makes sense, ponders Cornell, eyeing my crumpled map. At least the city is embracing the idea that the local scene is something that people outside of Seattle might be interested in. It's taken a long time, but we're still under siege here, because there's been this neurotic music bill that's basically designed to stigmatise any kind of music that a group of people consider harmful to minors. They keep trying to pass this bill year after year, he sighs. It started in Washington State. Seattle had the biggest rock music scene in the world and in Washington State they're trying to criminalise music. A few members of our band, plus Chris Novoselich and a few other bands actually went and lobbied in the state capitol. They talked to senators and said, here's the figures on how many millions of dollars the music community has brought into the state. You tell these guys and they almost seem surprised. It's not just local bands playing in pubs. We're talking about international recording artists who bring a lot of money back into this community. They're being entirely overlooked as part of the state's economy. They're trying to pass legislation that will make it really difficult for us to do what we do. A lot of it has to do with the fact that they don't realise what's happening. But doesn't rock music need something to fight against? Yeah, Chris nods. Once your parents like it, it's not rock anymore. That's my philosophy. I hope your kids will like music that you hate. Dad hates it. It must be cool. Chris Cornell, you can't help feeling, has changed little since the early days of Soundgarden. Visitors to the studio this afternoon are mostly bikers, both Chris and Matt Ride, or just old friends. 
Brad, an ex-member of the punk band Officer Down, shows up and he and Kim share memories of moving to Seattle with original Soundgarden bassist Hiro Yamamoto, now in Truly. On their first day in the city, Kim, Brad and Hiro found an unopened six-pack in the park, Welcome to Seattle. Later we end up at Brad's place drinking and watching Judas Priest and Danzig videos. It's good to know Kim still has friends who have hilarious video collections and nasty things growing behind their toilets. But how do you work out who's a friend these days and who just wants to know you because you're famous? The best rule of thumb is just to hate everybody, laughs Chris. I don't know, I end up making friends with people who sell you a beer at a store. As time goes on, meeting people in the music industry and famous people or people who've heard that you're famous gets more and more false. It's a situation you want to be in less and less. If I was more outgoing, I'd probably meet tons of amazing people who can enlighten me in ways I could never comprehend. I'd be a richer human being for it, but it doesn't happen. I just end up having a beer with grocery clerks and I feel great about it. I think people growing up in different cities have different attitudes, ponders Cornell. In New York, being famous is a really important thing. Culturally, I mean, when we played Madison Square Garden opening for Guns N' Roses, fans would say, you're playing Madison Square Garden like it was a huge deal. It wasn't the pinnacle of our career. We were opening for this other band, playing short sets in a half-empty arena. So what is the pinnacle of Chris's career? I think the closest to that is when our record debuted at number one in the US. We did it without having to be pop stars. That's probably the moment when all of what we've tried to do and everything we felt about music brought us to a point where we were successful. Hopefully, that will stand out as inspiration to other people who play music. They think no one's gonna like it. They should take heed, smiles Chris. You don't necessarily have to sound like somebody else to get people to hear you. There's always going to be a certain amount of people who want to hear something fresh. Then once they're rock stars, they'll have to deal with everyone thinking they suck. Communication and the letter of the week this week begins. I was at the London Astoria 2 to see Sick of It All on July 14th. Dying of first, I went up to the bar and asked for a can of coke. I was outraged to be charged £1 for the privilege of buying a drink in the Astoria 2 that you can get for 30p in the shops. They were also selling cans of lager at £1.90. As an incentive to us to pay these extortionate prices, the cold water had been turned off in the toilets and I wouldn't be surprised to hear that they had turned all the heaters on as well. The same thing occurred when I saw propane at the London Marquee last year. No water in the toilets and extortionate prices at the bar. When I saw Machine Head at Manchester Apollo, we were forced to drink nothing but Labatt's at 180 a can. What are you going to do next? Suck out all the oxygen from the venue and start selling tanks of air at the bar for 50 quid a time? It appears to me that they are getting utterly ripped off. Extreme music fans think they're so cool, so alternative, raging against the machine and taking no shit from anyone. But if you look deeper, we've become just another group ripe for being exploited by a system concerned with making more and more profit. We may wear our t-shirts with fuck written on them, but essentially all our statements mean nothing when at the same time we are seeing bands, we are being exploited and we wear identical t-shirts mass produced at some factory. To attack the system, we must not go along with this. Discontent from Peterborough. Interesting views from this, but in this weather, we can all appreciate the point about the drinks. That's why you win this week's Karen Cap, editor. I am confused. And the cause of my confusion is Fear Factory. It's not about their album Demanufacture because that is the finest rock hard heavy metal album ever. No, I'm not moaning that they cannot repeat those brain bashing noises live because they really can kick, judging by reports and footage of their recent Camden Underworld gig. However, I am confused about the band's true motives. 
They give birth to a truly stunning piece of work involving the fight against man becoming reliant on, and then like machines, despite this, Fear Factory freely admit that they extensively use computers on demanufacture and that their next offering could be done entirely with computer assistance. Do you, like me, feel that is a tad hypocritical? The Rage Against the Machine, surely a band with similar motives, album, proudly boasts that no samplers were used in production and it still manages to be a class album. Don't get me wrong, Fear Factory are one of the finest bands in the world. They have talent to be bigger and better than Machine Head, but please lads, write songs that truly reflect your own beliefs and feelings and not just about subjects that are fashionable. Paul Window, St Albans. Oh Toby, oh Toby my darling, what have you done to those lovely, long, blonde, shaggy locks of yours? I can't believe you've gone and joined the trend and had your hair cut short. Never mind, you're still looking as lovely as ever, but let them grow back please. The girl with a stupid vacant stare, West Yorkshire. What can I say? I'm shocked, stunned, knocked out of my skull. Have your brains been frazzled from too much television? I think so. I am of course referring to the highly dubious placement of Pete Steele in your wittily entitled My God You're Ugly spot. Anyone with brains can see that this love god deserves to be the Playgirl centerfold, or in GFAS at least. Pete is one of the most beautiful beings ever born and I'm amazed you didn't notice. What do I want? A Kerrang wall filling poster of the man himself in the aforementioned Playgirl pose. Well yeah, but that's irrelevant right now. I want an apology to the Stillster or else. What next? Courtney Love in a fucking convent? Nick Holmes' teddy bear from Bradford. Speaking of which, gagging for a shagging. Could you please print a picture of Silverchair, Ben, Chris and Daniel as they are a great band and all incredibly gorgeous and sexy. Silverchair are fucking amazing. Eva, Belgium. So whose idea was it to put Warrior Soul on this year's Donington Bill? They obviously didn't have to put up with their piss poor boring set when they supported the Almighty at Brixton last November. I've seen better cover bands at my local pub. What happened to the previously mentioned Paradise Lost and Megadeth? And why no Almighty this year? Warrior So will be the equivalent of Extreme's crap performance last year, but lower down the bill. Why do we have to put up with these second-rate bands? Donington, sort yourself out and put some British talent on the stage. You've got plenty to choose from and you'd be doing yourself, the fans and the bands a favour. A fucked off Brit metal fan. I'm sure I write on behalf of all Paradise Lost fans and expressing total disbelief at the band not getting on the Donington bill. What more did a band who have easily made the album of the year have to do to be recognised and truly appreciated? Also, I've got nothing against therapy, but to be given a slot at Donington two years running, give me a break. Maybe the organisers should think about moving the whole thing to the States. With this year's lineup, it would be a lot easier. Cheers to Lars, Aimcarve, etc. for fucking up what would have been a truly memorable day. I'd have paid the 26 quid to see Paradise Lost alone. One of many very pissed off Paradise Lost fans. What's the fucking problem? Why is everybody whinging and moaning about Donington and Reading clashing on the same day? There's no bloody comparison. The following bands have been confirmed for the Monsters of Rock, Metallica, Therapy, Slayer, Machine Head, White Zombie, Skid Row, Slashy Snake Pit and Warrior Soul. Now compare this build to the utter shit on display at Reading the same day, which includes Bjork and these well-known names like Little Axe, Tricky, Shed 7 and Frying Muses. Who? The only band I know is the excellent Skunk and Nancy. Dave Vetter of Cardiff wrote in Kerrang 554 that there would be only Crusher and seven others at Donington. Bollocks. Donington will attract the thousands as it always has. Why? Because there are a few rock metal fans left who believe that if there's no Donington, then fuck all the other poxy festivals. 
All the moaning tossers who rushed out and coughed up 60 quid to go to Reading because Donington's off and I want to go to a festival, fine. You're the losers. While I'm watching Metallica destroy Castle Donington, I'll spare a thought for all the saddos sat in the field in Reading listening to Bjork. Next time, have more patience, people. Somebody's going to Donington. Sutton. P.S. Is it just me or does anyone else wish Courtney Love would fuck off and give it a rest for just a little while? A week would be fine. It looks like Mark Kedds was the Wild Hearts' friend for five minutes. Steve Norman, Jersey. Ill communication. The posters in this week's Kerrang! are of Bon Jovi, Pearl Jam, Dog Eat Dog and Bush. There is one poster left in this week's Kerrang! which is uh, Bush and Bon Jovi. So that means that either Pearl Jam or Dog Eat Dog were on my wall when I was a teenager. I can't remember which one I put up. I imagine it was probably Dog Eat Dog, but I also imagine it probably should have been Pearl Jam. Anyway... There is no singles reviewed this week, so let's move on to the next piece, which is Machine Head, the ultra-violent hometown hoedown, Oakland horror. Gangs, drugs, guns, you name them, you'll find them all in Oakland, California, Machine Head's hometown. It ain't a pretty place, as Stefan Chirazzi finds out when Machine Head main man Rob Flynn dodges the bullets to give him a guided tour. For Machine Head's Rob Flynn, Northern California's Bay Area isn't just home, it's a way of life. His city of birth, the infamous Oakland, is grittier and less glamorous than its cousin across the bay, San Francisco. But Rob Flynn loves the Bay Area, warts and all. I'm on his Bay Area pride kick, Machine Head is doing everything it can to support and promote the Bay Area because it's so much a part of us. To prove the point, Rob is taking the Big Kerrang on a tour of his favourite Bay Area stomping grounds and the evening could only start with a nice heavy dinner at Rob's all-time favourite Mexican restaurant, El Taco Zamorano. The Oakland Chapter Hells Angels clubhouse is right across the street. Rob can hardly contain himself. As our car pulls up, he's bobbing about like a man playing block to 70,000 people at Donington. Homemade corn tortillas, he blasts. None of that white boy shit. Uh-huh, you gotta have corn. Listen, after being on the road for months, I was craving for this place. Hands down, bar none, this is the best Mexican food in the Bay Area. You order number 15, he demands. Two green enchiladas. Chicken, of course. This is always where I go for Mexican food. Next up is a huge warehouse called the Oakland Cannery. Machine Head guitarist Logan Madder lived here in 1993 and drummer Chris Contos first jammed with the band here too. The riff for Old was conceived here, Rob reveals. Logan played the riff and we left it alone for quite some time before we made a song out of it. It was a piece of shit place. Logan had a roommate called Schmo who do tattoos here and just across the tracks are the 69 field projects, government created slum area housing estates. We won't be visiting the 69 field projects. It's scary enough during the day. A walk down the railway tracks brings us to the Oakland Coliseum, home to many day on the green festivals, the Oakland A's baseball team and the returning badass silver and black Oakland Raiders football team. In Attitude, we took on the Raiders approach more than the pussy San Francisco 49ers approach, sneers Rob. If the Raiders play well, they're amazing. If they're losing, they'll beat you up. As a young Flynn, my dad brought me religiously to games before the Raiders relocated to LA for a decade. Now that Oakland Raiders are back, things are reaching fever pitch. The Raiders and Machine Head are very similar. When we do win, it's fucking amazing. When we lose, it's fucking horrible. I went to my day on the green in 1985, the one with Metallica. I woke up at 8am, started drinking, did a quarter of speed in one blast and went through the whole fucking gear, uh, wired off my head and drunk off my ass. I went up front killing people for Metallica. I don't indulge in that behaviour anymore, but everyone to their own. 
It's 11.44pm when we get to East 14th Street in Oakland, a place where Little Vietnam meets Dealersville and Horse City. The streets are quiet, save for the Stratton Street girls, the odd cruising cop and the low riders purring up the street. This is where our main official practice spot was. We ended up all living here because we were always practicing. We wrote Davidium and a lot of burn my eyes here between the winter of 93 and the summer of 94. And just up the street is where we recorded the demo, giving away free through Kerrang a few moons back, fact fiends. It's a pretty festive little neighborhood. Vietnamese gang shootouts and stuff. I also love the fact that it still says stop bitch on that road sign. That's remained there for a long time. At 12.15am, we wind up at the Omni, a legendary Oakland venue that's currently disused. I used to come here four times a week, saw some killer bands, Rob recalls. I always had a grand old fucking time. But as we stand outside the club, there is tension in the air. Across the street, on a block well known for gangs and crack busts, a sky-high bad boy is threatening to kick some girl's ass, bust her head open. Then there's five bad boys. The chatting stops and five sets of eyes are trained on us from across the road. Rob makes the call. Out of here. Quickly we get in our cars and pull away. That was strange for me back there, Rob shrugs. I haven't been back since the altercation. Without getting into too much detail, Machine Head and their friends got caught up in a fight nearby with five heavy guys. One of theirs got stabbed. The gang leader believes he was dissed by Flynn. Flynn says he wasn't, but it doesn't matter. This man, should he see Rob, won't stop to ask questions. Let's just say this neighborhood ain't in the holiday brochures. It's about 12.25am when we step into what used to be the infamous Roofies Inn. The gaff is currently being redecorated, but Flynn can hardly contain his excitement as he hurriedly inspects what he assures me was the ugliest bathroom in club history. I remember there was a dead rat in the sink once, he laughs. I took a cigarette and stuck it in his mouth, and there it stayed all night. A dead rat with a cigarette in his mouth. I have a photo to prove it. You know, I learned to stage dive off this very stage, beams Flynn proudly. I used to come here when I was 16, and the first show I saw here was Exodus before they even had an album out. This was when Exodus were by far the most violent thing you could come across on the west coast. We were up front banging and one of possessed stage dive right on my friend and knocked him unconscious, so I knew it was a cool place. I once saw a 70 person brawl go right through the club and out the doors. It was ugly. This was also where I played my first ever club show. I hung out here religiously. Our final stop is just up the road at a place that used to be known to all as the Hell House, back in the days when it was the home of crazed Exodus singer Paul Bulloff who painted the pentagram on his bedroom floor. This is where the massive parties were held after roofies right through to 87, says Rob. There were always people getting stabbed with forks. Rubbers were hung from the lights and girls would suck them off. This is a crazy, crazy house. Booze, speed, coke, many a beer was drunk, many a good time was had, many a fool's stupid ass was broken here. Things were generally out of control. Everybody used to hang out here. The Metallica guys, everyone. So whatever happened to the Bay Area metal community and our machine head on a mission to revive it? Rob, I think a lot of people grew up and either went the good route or the drugged up shitty route. A lot of people took the latter and it killed a lot of ambitions. Remember that I was a kid then. Most of these people were older than us. A machine head's mission now is to revive a scene here. We want to do it with the rest of the Bay Area bands like Powerhouse, Neurosis, Level and all the up and coming bands. We want to make sure that the Bay Area scene becomes great again. Where the music thrives, and it's pushing limits again. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record that's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Next up in Kerrang! we have albums. And the album of the week this week is Exit the Dragon by Urge Overkill. 
Reviewed by Mark Blake, this one gets 4Ks. Examining the evidence, Chicago's hard rock outfit Urge Overkill are a little too clever for their own good. While Saturation, their major label debut was one of the best records of 1993 and their recent take on Neil Diamond's Girl You'll Be A Woman Soon Immortalized on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack scored a resounding 10 on the credometer, the band haven't quite managed Genghis Khan style world domination. The records may be great, but their sharp suits, junk medallions and oh so ironic posing have sometimes made them seem like little smug bastards more concerned with running up a whacking great Taylor's bill than cutting the definitive career record. Exit the Dragon is a dirtier proposition than the polite saturation and all the better for it. The druggy title is cringeworthy, but this is flash loud hard rock and the kind of record that we'll be playing in the background next time some Hollywood heartthrob kills over outside the Viper Room. But don't let Urge Overkill's terminal hipness put you off. Open the jaywalking is a real sludge fest. Frontman Nash Cato, grown as about too much evil in this world against a dense, funky backbeat. The break, need some air, and somebody else's body are lighter and upbeat, cross-referencing power pop pranksters like Weezer and Green Day with a big noise quota of serious alternative types like Live. With both bases covered, the band have the freedom to throw in something cheesy and contagious like The Mistake, which tinkles away like a 90s version of the cars. Sure, there are a couple of misses alongside the hits with uh, This Is No Place and Take Me Too Average to really impress, but Last Night Tomorrow is a loud guitar thing that sets up a hat trick of tinfoil, Monopoly and Dual Say, songs with all the sus and appeal of cheap trick jamming Nirvana. Urge Overkill's Rockstar Tantrums at Glastonbury this summer were a wrist slapping offence, but Exit the Dragon somehow wipes the slate clean. With a record this good, you just can't help loving them. Next we have Super Friends by Sweet Water. Reviewed by Paul Rees, this gets 4Ks. Three albums into their career, Seattle's Sweet Water have apparently dropped their previous grunge affectations, dusted down their 70s vinyl collections and promptly delivered this year's perfect summer album. Super Friends is a thumpingly entertaining collection of American pop rock that sticks its finger on the musical pulse of the moment from the start and never lets go through 12 tracks that are tailor-made to be heard booming out beneath a hot sunny sky. Like Urge Overkill on Saturation, Sweet Water's starting points are Cheap Trick's first few records, meaning three-minute tunes that buzz with fizzing riffs and day-glow hooks. Big Rock Show, Painless and Superstar for instance follow the vintage trick, uh, trick of building an entire song around a giddily insistent chorus. Super Friends also spreads its net wider. Adeline takes an authentic plunge into cult 60s popsters big stars melodic muse while self-hater briefly nudges the set along a darker more measured path. But most of Sweetwater's aces are built on punky energy and big guitars. Cake and Strict 9 kicks the whole thing off in a grand manner, a chunk of fuzzed up guitar rattling through a hook that zooms in and out of focus. Painless is similarly ebullient. Hugh Grant are like vocalist Adam Sizler's horse croon peeping through the cracks in the band's sustained adrenaline rush. Then there are the two benchmarks. No syrup for your pancakes set a series of ascending harmonies against a swirling musical backdrop and comes out the other side like some psychedelic pop tune with a rocket up its ass. Win is a bulging rhythmic barrage rising and falling out of a truly great multicoloured vocal refrain. At present, Super Friends still hasn't been given a firm release date in the UK. We obviously have no need for a young, good-looking band with a bag full of killer songs.
The last album reviewed this week is Rainmaker by Von Groove. Reviewed by Dave Reynolds, this gets 4Ks. Rainmaker is a little minx of an album. You soon find yourself seduced, especially by the title cut, which comes on like a heavier collective soul. Von Groove haven't survived the transition from the debut LP without taking on board some contemporary influences. Both Eve of Destruction and Queen's Logic have that 90s feel, but the band hasn't suddenly turned into a post-grunge monster. If anything, as Rainmaker and Indian Man reveal, they've been more influenced by Native American rhythms. The presence of Axe Hero Medium does ensure that Von Groove don't stray totally off the beaten path, creating enough guitar pyro to push the weight and close the heaven's door to the top of the pole, whilst the man also gives a loving caress to the more sedate Lady Blue. Rainmaker gets you in the end. Next up we have the Kerrang! interview. Super unknown. What the devil is Blind Melon's new LP soup all about? Have America's trippiest band taken too many drugs this time around? Why have they written songs about murder, serial killers and suicide? Steve Beebe quizzes frontman Shannon Hoon. The Capitol Records Tower on North Vine Street, Los Angeles is an imposing structure if you happen to be a new band seeking a deal. Right now, a hopeful R&B act is arguing with security in the lobby. They want to go to the A&R department with their demo, but as the perspiring guard vigorously informs them, you don't go nowhere without a pass. On the top floor, Blind Melon are posing for photographs. After suffering nervous exhaustion on their last tour, the band are back in good shape and feeling good about the future. Their new album Soup is an eclectic progressive set of songs which could take them to an even higher level than their multi-million selling self-titled debut. A much heavier outing, Soup is a concoction of clever songwriting and a myriad of influences. Diminutive frontman Shannon Hoon is an easygoing, talkative fellow who squirms uncontrollably in his seat. Before too long, he is precariously balanced with his feet up against the wall and his head dipping towards the carpet. He is, however, as honest and enthusiastic a character as you could wish to meet. This time around, there's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Blind Melon are seen as a feel-good band, so what do you make of the culture of despair tag that's given to most 90s bands? Shannon Hoon Actually, I believe it has a scarring effect on young people. I think Nine Inch Nails are brilliant, but unfortunately young people often base their lives around the music they listen to. It's like letting MTV brainwash you. You have to realise it's an individual's frustration that causes these artists to write in the way they do. They're not saying copy me, be like me, but kids like to have role models. I use music to heal myself. Trent Reznor would probably say the same thing. Exactly. It's just that I deal with things differently. I'm capable of seeing the iconic or comic side of most things. Anyone between the age of 21 to 35 has grown up in a pretty shitty world and sadly, kids in their teens are faced with the depressing music of their elders. I don't want to instill that kind of torture into my child's life. That tortured artist shit really irks me. Has this attitude affected your long relationship with Axl Rose? I don't know. He's become a recluse. I'm still friends with him, but at the same time, he's become a more difficult person to communicate with. It's difficult. He's so unpredictable. Axel was the guy who introduced us to the people that now manage us because he didn't want us to get screwed over. We're fortunate enough to have management that honestly care about us as people and that's really priceless. We were just wide-eyed small town kids so Axel really helped. He had his own ways of dealing with his problems but I'm not sure they were the right ways. Coming back to this so-called age of the tortured artists, do you think 1995 is a good time to be in a band? Oh sure. There's a lot of authentic bands out there. I think it's an exciting time to be in a band. But the 80s, man, they killed. 
Bon Jovi and Motley Crue corrupted people and led the youth astray. At 15 years old, I listened to the crew and thought they were the coolest. Then I suddenly realised that nothing they had to say had any relevance to reality. It took the 80s to make the 90s to pay attention. Right now I'm listening to Foo Fighters who are great. It's not just entertaining, it's therapeutic also. Don't you even admire the longevity of a band like Bon Jovi? Well, I don't care about the longevity of Joe Cocker and of Neil Young, but I really can't say that I care about the longevity of Bon Jovi. When a band has been around so long and still doesn't have a clue about reality, how can you possibly admire them? Don't look at me like that, man. Only this morning I saw an advertisement board for the new Bon Jovi album outside Tower Records on Sunset, and John's head is about as big as a fucking car. That sucks. Changing the subject, would you agree that Soup is a tough album to get into? Yeah, but that's what I like most about it. We're fortunate to have five band members who all contribute equally as songwriters. That leads to some pretty diverse material. Our drummer, Glenn Graham, for example, wrote all the music to Car Seat, which is my favourite song on the album. It'd be terrible to be in a band where one guy does all the work and the rest are just like hired hands. Recording in New Orleans was an incredible experience. It's by far more eccentric than LA. Drugs are no less illegal than they are everywhere else, but they are more readily available anyway. It led to some erratic behaviour on our part. There was so much going on that it alleviated any pressure we might have felt. I sit and think of New Orleans and I can't actually remember making this record. Is it fair to say that Blind Melon wouldn't have been capable of making an album like Soup three years ago? I think that's a pretty safe bet. There's no way we could have made this record before now. It was the information overload we experienced together on tour that led to our having the intensity to create this record. Three years ago, we were too young to really know what direction we wanted to pursue. We were still getting to know each other as people. And this record is a confirmation of how our friendship has grown. We've come to terms with how to use the friction in the band in a productive manner. You don't have to be getting along the best buddies to write a great song. Some bands like Faith No More have lost key members through not getting along. It's too easy to just walk away. We enjoy our working relationship, including the little bits of friction we experience. After a long tour though, it's very important to get away from each other for a few months. At times, when we're not involved in being creative, the presence of one another can be intolerable. There are some interesting, though quite disturbing lyrics on the album. St Andrew 4 is about a suicide, and Skinned is about serial killer Ed Gein. What's the story behind Carsey? There's a story that's very big in the news right now about a woman who drowned her two kids in the backseat of her car so she could go live with a new man. I believe that children are God's gift, so I think this is a story everyone should hear. Parents killing their children supposedly in the name of love is incomprehensible to me. The case stirred up a lot of ill feeling, particularly as she initially claimed her kids were taken by two black guys. There was a racist element to it as well. Skinned though is a happy, skippy kind of song which my mum loves. This guy, Ed Gein, used to make full-bodied suits from women's skins, which he'd dance around in. He'd also make lampshades and coffee tables from their remains. The same thing happened to Jewish prisoners at concentration camps like Buchenwald during World War II. Is it really a suitable subject for humour? Well, obviously I don't condone this sort of behaviour. It's disgusting, but the world creates these subjects and I'm just reporting on them. It's just stuff that fascinates me, even though it horrifies me at the same time. How do you explain the core of evil that makes people, or even a race of people, wish to perpetrate such acts of barbarism? It's just tongue in cheek. There are two sides to the same coin, and you can't take skin too seriously. After all, it even features a kazoo solo. One of those plastic things you get in Christmas crackers? Yeah, they're great. You don't need to have any talent to play one. Okay, let's move on to the last time you played live. 
Looking back on your appearance at Woodstock 94, would you agree that the spirit of the original festival was lost? Yeah, it was a travesty. The thing I liked about Glastonbury was that there were far less emphasis on corporate backing. In America, you can't put on a big show without a million lawyers firing lawsuits about. This year, however, we'll be playing Reading, which will be a different atmosphere altogether. The reason the first Woodstock was such a success was because it was so disorganised and came together naturally. This time, Woodstock was so organised that it ended up kinda chaotic. Any community spirit was suppressed by organisation, but I do have fond memories of that gig. Seeing Joe Cocker was amazing. When it was our turn to play, I was still on a complete high. How close were the band to cracking up at the end of that arduous two year long tour? Too close for comfort. Everything will be more staggered this time around. With the first album, we had no way of gauging how successful it was going to be. We used to stir up internal band warfare just for something to do. You get so numb you have to throw shit in your soup just to make it taste different. It was self-sabotage. We had to get off tour after Glastonbury because we were all getting sick and we were insulting the intelligence of our fans. In retrospect, I think the reason I enjoyed last year's Glastonbury Festival so much was because uh, we knew it would be our last show for a while. The tour had come to a natural end. Unfortunately, our management understood. Friction had just boiled over. Now, of course, I'm once again overwhelmed with undying love for my bandmates. Chart Attack and the number one album this week is Foo Fighters by Foo Fighters. Number one in the indie LPs is Smash by Offspring and number one in the singles chart is Evidence, Faith No More. The reader's chart comes from Ian Panniers from Coventry. His chart begins one Metallica, uh, was a one, one Metallica, two Blood for Blood Machine Head, three 25 Years Pantera, four Room a Thousand Years Wide Soundgarden, five Bottom Tool, six Christendom Paradise Lost, seven Love Denied Biohazard, 8 Amen Sepultura, 9 213 Slayer, and 10 My Friend of Misery Metallica. This week's um, star tracks come from Skid Row's Sebastian Back. His chart is 1 Grace Jeff Buckley, 2 Firefire EZO, 3 Box Set Janis Joplin, 4 Melissa The Allman Brothers Live on the Tom Snyder Show in 1977, and 5 The Last Crustato by Alessandro Moreschi. Next week in Kerrang Bank Issues Monster Mosh with White Zombie. America's hottest band get ready to slay Reading and Donington. 12 days on the road with Bon Jovi. Save £6 on LPs at Virgin. Rancid, they eat offspring for breakfast. Silverchair, smells like teen spirit. Plus Whale, Skid Row, Therapy, Terrorvision, The Almighty, Machine Head, Posters, Blind Melon, Soundgarden, Sepultura and Green Day. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I hope you're all doing well out there and I will talk to you soon. Bye for now.